Hey everybody, welcome to TCP Talks with Jonathan Baker and Justin Broadley from The Cloud Pod. In this series, we're bringing you interviews with the best and brightest leaders and heroes from the tech and cloud industry. Miles, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Miles Ward. I'm CTO at SADA. SADA is Google Cloud's uh, number one reseller and implementation partner. Um, I spent uh, five years before this building the solutions architecture function at Google Cloud. So I was in the first uh, 100 or so employees there. We grew that business over the five-year period about a hundredfold uh, and did a bunch of uh, new product proposals and pushed on some of the building blocks that help uh, customers make cloud easier. Uh, I learned how to do that stuff by spending four years at AWS, was the fifth solutions architect worldwide there, wrote the first solution uh, and uh, built the checklist that became the well-architected program, did uh, implementation work with some fun customers, the Obama campaign, folks at NASA. Um, so between the two and over the, that decade of work, uh, it's been about four and a half billion bucks in public cloud consumption that I've directly interacted with and helped customers uh, be successful with. So um, when I'm not doing cloud nerding, which is, you know, it's kind of a lot of the time, uh, instead I'm, I'm playing electric sousaphone or, uh, you know, trying to hot rod my, my old BMW and make it do the things that it's not supposed to. So uh, I have fun. How are you? Nice to meet you. My first introduction to SADA actually was at Google Next, and it was because I used the F1 as a marker for finding people in the conference center. <laughs> I was like, yeah. all right, so there's an F1 that says SADA on the side of it. Just take a left there and then a right, and I'm right here. Uh, that was my first introduction. But then, you know, as, and that was early on in the Cloud Pod, um, you know, and I've learned over the years now we're doing the Cloud Pod how much SADA is involved in, in Google and your guys' involvement. So, you know, being one of the premier Google partners is a big deal. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's definitely interesting to see kind of your trajectory. It looks like, uh, you know, looking at the history, you guys weren't always just Google. What, what made you guys decide Google was really the direction you wanted to go and specialize in as a partner? Sure. Uh, the company is 20 years old uh, and, you know, built as a family business. Uh, to help people be successful with technology and to give young people opportunities uh, in in learning the the technology industry and ecosystem, uh, and and at the time twenty years ago, there uh, you know Google had was founded like six months after that, so there were no Google enterprise products to speak of, uh, and at the time the dominant platform was Microsoft, so they built a Microsoft implementation and consultancy business, built web applications, um, built, uh, you know, and helped people deploy the broader Microsoft stack. Uh, and it's really a, a couple of folks uh, that worked very hard, uh, you know, Edmund and Simon, um, that, that identified um, some of the earliest pieces from Google, the search appliance. So there are partners for Google that have been around for a while. A few of them have been around as long as SADA. They saw early on that there was this gap in the Microsoft technology stack that some of the Google building blocks served well. And so starting with all the way back to the search appliance and then Maps and G Suite, and uh, which was you know before then Google Apps, um, those practices, you know, uh, each of those became um, faster growing than, than the part of the business that ran at Microsoft. And because they had been so early in that marketplace, you have to imagine there's kind of uh, you know, lovely to be first place as opposed to, you know, one of 20,000 of the Microsoft partners. And so because of the combination of growth rate 
um, you know, seeing a clearer strategy from from the Google go to market and how they work together with partners, uh, and the recognition that this put them in sort of an undifferentiated space. If you represent all the technology providers, you're you're what are like a brokerage or you don't come into the relationship with much of an opinion or perspective. Most of the customers that I talk to want you to tell them what to do. And, and so that's pretty hard when you have kind of, Ooh, you could do one of these two things and they compete with each other. And, uh, and so that also frustrated sellers on both sides made it a lot easier when, when they, cause I hadn't joined yet as a team, uh, made the call to think through, okay, which of these two would we pick? Um, and they found a great buyer in core uh, BTS to acquire the Microsoft part of the business. So it's just two months after that, I had been talking to them before and they had described to me that they were in the middle of, of this transition. This is the way that they had thought about it. Uh, and in meeting with the executive team, I laid out what I had seen um, because I, I was a part of building the partner programs at AWS. And there's just a there's a movie that we watched in, you know, in 2014, 2015, 2016, where AWS regional systems integrators did really well because it's very hard as those cloud hyperscale providers grow beyond a certain size to focus on, you know, what ought to be very important large format customers, right? An eight-figure deal is a, it's a big deal. But if you're in the middle of doing a bunch of billion-dollar deals, suddenly it's a small deal and you don't want to invest very, very many cycles in it. If you're a buyer in an eight figure buy, you want to be a big deal. <laughs> and, and it's really hard uh, to get uh, to get to the kind of traction without having a partner ecosystem that can make those investments. So I, I saw, I was like, there's going to be a rerun. Uh, and uh, that's a movie that I liked the last time. Let's see how that goes. So um, I also had spent a lot of cycles uh, in the solutions architecture function at Google, which is sort of the top point of technical escalation in the customer go-to-market experience. You'd talk to a sales rep and they would have a you know trouble understanding what the sort of technical thing you're trying to do. They would grab a customer engineer, customer engineer would do a great job, and then there would be some specific or new or path-breaking thing you were trying to do, and they wouldn't have the context for that. They would escalate maybe to specialists who knew that specific area. When the specialists were being told to do a thing that just we didn't have a pattern for, we didn't have an example of, that would come over onto my team in solutions architecture to build that pattern. So um, what I saw as a limiter in that team's ability to be successful is the limits on the Google side for getting hands-on with customers. So it was, how do, I, how do I find an opportunity where I can get more information about how these solutions work when the rubber hits the road and you actually have to turn the thing on and you have to operate it and op, you know be, behave in a governed way and not have the costs go implodo and uh and sada has more customers than the rest of them so they have more data about this than everybody else and it just sort of seems pretty obvious that they would be the fun place to do this kinds of hands-on work which is what we've done for the last two years it's been totally great Nice. So as you've transitioned from kind of a solutions architect type role mm -hmm. to a CTO, what does, what does CTO look like for a services company? Sure. Uh, it, uh, I didn't know, <laughs> right? Like, mm, uh, you know, new guy, uh, happy to help. And, and the founder of the business was the previous CTO. So like, take, you know, taking over for the boss. Hi, boss. You know, ho hopefully I don't, you know, mess this up for you. Oh, you know, wish, wish me luck. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were there was a lot of what Solutions Architecture did that is in common with the way that I'm running the CTO business and, and division inside of SADA, where 
our sellers and our technical sellers need need structure and need examples and need clear decisions about that that works right that doesn't work very well in practice and the context and the experience of seeing this stuff play out at thousands of customers really really helps so i end up being kind of solutions architect in chief and we've built a great solutions architect function and customer engineering function to help customers um, move through the platform but i end up still being the kind of top point of escalation in that in that pre-sales and conveniently now because this is the stuff i was here to learn in the post-sales process when we're actually doing the implementations and deployments so uh, i don't get <laughs> i'm not let off the hook right when we get the deal i'm like yay we signed it's like no no like you're gonna hang out for four years while we get these people working so uh, I've, I've actually really had a lot of fun with that part of it and learned a lot about um, you know, what needs to happen in, in solutions design and communications to make it so that this stuff is really applicable in the real world. Um, the parts uh, of CTO that I, that I didn't expect spending a bunch of time on because um, you know, it's, a, it's a very rapidly growing company, right? We've basically tripled the thing since I started. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of kind of internal IT stuff that we're trying to run through and make sure it all works right and facilitates our growth. So it's like kind of nice when you can have the external consultant that's seen, you know, the way Twitter has deployed their data analysis. Maybe we should like follow that pattern for data analysis here. It might work out pretty good. Um, uh, There's also been a lot of work uh, helping refine kind of the way our hiring and recruiting and interviewing and middle management operations and the sort of philosophies that we're using uh, to help people be successful in roles. There's um, there's a lot that I have learned from the dynamism and total drive of a small company that that does not does not suffer fools and has no no patience for slow moving process and i've i've also been able to help by going like you know a, a teensy bit of structure might be helpful here and gets us to a more consistent way of uh, of interacting with candidates and, and new hires and that's i think been um been really helpful in in helping us keep promises to customers you know, you have a lot of experience on the solutions architect side from looking at Amazon versus GCP and now on the on the partner side and helping customers actually use these tools. Yeah. How do you see, you know, the philosophy and the strategy of Google differ from what AWS is doing in the space? Uh, it's immensely different. Um, and I think it's uh, there are differences that are very difficult to tell uh, if you haven't been participant internally. So some of that stuff is like core strategic operational differences that are inherited from, uh, you know, from Bezos and Jassy and, you know, Sundar and Eric Schmidt and uh, Larry and Sergey, right? Those, those leaders built different companies and the cultures that they constructed have ramifications on the way that these two businesses operate. So like everybody's heard of two pizza teams, right? Like, I, I'm an Amazon. I want to understand and, and experiment. I'm gonna I'm gonna build a small team and cut them loose and give them a long runway so that I can be understood, misunderstood for a while, uh, and get to get to a sort of successful outcome. That that has, in my view, what I saw in product management and product operations, enormous benefits in time, like time to first release, time to V1, time to MVP is exceptional at the Amazon side. There are almost no impediments for a small team that operates you know as close as you can get to being a little startup inside of a big ass garage is the way that you can think about any one of those aws product managers 
uh, and and there's not a lot that enforces uh, you know limitations or uh, you know structural rigor or any of that on those departments. Now, that's awesome for getting to V1. Getting to V2 is sort of brutal because uh, you've you most customers expect you to mature in a way that aligns more closely across products that allows solutions where you're using more than one of these fundamental building blocks together in a way that is say seamless uh, that part is hard if you have a hundred competing with each other startups vying for resources and capabilities so you know EBS is a product and s3 is a product and both of them allow you to store bytes you might imagine that the partnership of allowing like an EBS volume to back up to S3, that's like, like they planned on that and it seemed like a good idea and there's like great cross-functional meetings and everybody's kumbaya. No, no, no. Those two engineering teams compete for resources. One wants to beat the other one. That's really different than the way the Google product management approach works. And, and, and another driver of that difference um, is, it, you know, Amazon built its cloud from scratch, from acquisition, but certainly from scratch, right? The EC2 that you are using is the EC2 that they gobbled up the, the South African company from DeSantis and Greenfield and, uh, and stood up that sort of structure as the original way to manage virtualization. Google's cloud is V2, right? They, they built one already called Borg and it's rad, works good, serves, you know, nine billion user businesses, super successful, consumes a fifth of the x86 compute on the planet, right? Like, works pretty good. So if you're going to be a development team that decides, hey, we're going to build, a, you know, a marketable, customer-facing infrastructure resource, the, the stack there is very different, right? Like, I use my existing, highly functional, globally scaled public cloud to write software for a public cloud, <laughs> right? And that uh, that is a cheat, a galactic cheat that allowed them to, uh, one, get a whole bunch of more products to work together more seamlessly and to sort of simplify the process of building kind of whole platforms. So storage is maybe the easiest example of that, right? If, if you're a bunch of two pizza teams at Amazon and love them, they're hyper smart and working really, really hard, but you've got one operating system, one network stack, one, you know, configuration of storage, one storage hardware vendor, you know, that this team builds. And then the other team, you could build total different. Some is Red Hat, some is Ubuntu, some is Seagate, some is Western Digital, some is Mellanox, some ain't, right? And don't slow, don't get in their way. <laughs> Make sure that they can build whatever they need to build. Give them the autonomy to do that. Uh, at, at Google, you've got one of the largest supply chain systems in the world consuming 27 tons of magnetic disk a day. So as a product manager, you don't, you don't think about the hardware at all. That's a, this whole other division that's going way faster than you could ever possibly go. Uh, and storage as, a, as an API has already been solved by the central uh, Colossus technology platform or the big table platform or these other central storage tools. And so if you're gonna build you know, persistent disk of volume that gets exposed to others, and you're also going to build GCS and object store, and you're also going to build big table, a KV. In the back, that's 
that's all just on that one thing, <laughs> right? And, and so backups between are easier, moving data around happens in seconds, uh, and, uh, and getting to V2 and V3 and V4 of those products is much more tractable for those developers. But how does that affect the, the end user? How the sausage is made, how does that trickle down? Go to an EBS volume, fill it with deuterogen, and fill a terabyte of random, and hit backup to S3 and set your stopwatch. See you in a couple of days because you're transiting from one infrastructure system to an entirely different infrastructure system moving the bytes from the EBS servers to the S3 servers. There are no PD servers or GCS servers. There's just Colossus, the largest storage system in the world. When you do a backup of a PD volume, you're changing some pointer bytes in Colossus and it happens in a couple of seconds. If you're uh, you know, you use like uh, you want to use Aurora uh, and reach over to S3 to be able to hold the data in your data lake. Don't bring it into your relational database, but I still want to do relational queries against it. That's a they're working really hard to align to the capabilities from Google from four years before that, where you, of course, can read in a BigQuery table objects out of GCS because they're all the same storage. Uh, and, and so they, they finally get to that spot and customers go, wow, this thing isn't very performant, right? Because you're reading from one server cluster full of systems to this other system over here and they, they are not deeply aligned and, and set up to sort of operate at scale. And so there's, there's parts that are very frustrating, right? As, a, as someone who's helping customers, I want everything to be done already. And so that time to V1 is an important measure of utility. I, there's a bunch of problems that would be really nice if, if the platforms had solved. Uh, and in my you know, first years at Google Cloud, some of this stuff was intensely frustrating, right? Like I spent a bunch of time standing on tables shouting about specific features that we really needed to be able to meet customers where they were. But um, that gap's closed. Like, I don't, I haven't yet run into a company that is doing a thing that you can successfully do on Amazon or on Azure and that you can't easily do that same thing on Google Cloud. Um, you get way off in, I mean, there used to be big impediments there, right? Like can't deal with Oracle, can't deal with VMware, you know, structural stuff on SAP, trying to figure out how to deal with multicast networking, these like big, crunchy legacy impediments to adoption. And that stuff's dealt with, right? It's 2021, we live in the future, the shit works. So now it's more about making it easy enough and predictable enough to consume that, that folks can unlock the business justification. So you mentioned VMware, which kind of came in the Thomas Curran era. How have you seen Google change since he took the reins? Sure, TK is brilliant. My buddies and I wrote a 30-something page document called the Book of Essay, trying to help communicate to the broader org what our team was doing and how we arrived on our strategy and what were the building blocks for that. We thought of it as kind of, you know, an internal homework project to make sure that we, you know, we knew ourselves what we were off to do. I showed it to my boss and he was like, oh, that's lovely. And like, I could see him look at the first page or so. Uh, you know, there are logs on these things in Google Docs. Uh, and uh, and then I was like, you know, oh, okay, let, you know, let's show it to some other teams. And they would, you know, they'd sort of surf around and look at it. We got into a meeting uh, uh, to review this with TK, and I watched him read and highlight every paragraph all the way to the bottom before he stopped talking. And, and it was about six minutes 
for him to get through those 30 pages. And he had very detailed, specific questions about our strategic approach. And I was like, well, okay. <laughs> there are a whole bunch of teams that are not, don't have their book ready yet. And so he is going to light them on fire. And, uh, and a whole bunch of teams that are not prepared for, for that level of oversight and, and sort of direct pressure. Diane was, I thought, had the most incredible Rolodex any of us had ever seen, right? I mean, like there is no company in the world that is not using VMware to some degree. So there's like every company you can talk to, she knows somebody, right? It's just, ah, it was an unbelievable level of access. Um, but there was only so much time, right? Like how do I get Diane to do nine hours a day of introduction calls? And that, that was not happening. Well, it's hard to keep TK out of customers. That guy is super focused about spending the majority of his time face-to-face -face with customer interactions and is not, not doing that to glad hand. He's deal-making and proposal-pushing and thinking through the machinery of how to build these kind of higher-level relationships that, that big executive companies want to be able to do. So I think those two um, contributions of his have been very material and uh, and I think it sets up and sets the expectation for Googlers um, across the sales and go-to-market and, and marketing and product management functions to follow in that lead. It's really difficult culturally for Google, particularly as you go over into engineering and product management, to get into empathy with old-school, crunchy, 50-year-old enterprise. It's just it's hard. And I think for in a lot of cases... They've worked, you know, I think very diligently to eliminate the technical roadblocks, like, you know, making it so that a given uh, API is accessible or something that's, you know, connected into, you know, enterprise software licensing, or they set up a marketplace. They did a bunch of these pieces that are clearly sort of all the branches to our friends uh, running legendary software. Um, but it's, it's not uh, the other part of that is the cultural relationship that those companies expect. And it's been a big shift for folks to realize like, yep, they do go slower and th that's on purpose. They like it that way. I mean, it's not a, a mistake that they're going to spend 18 months evaluating you. They want to see if you can invest for 18 months because they know that you're going to have to invest with them for a decade to make them successful. Right. And they are trying to test your fortitude and will. And that's like startupers and customer facing stuff. Like the attention span is a little shorter. So TK has set a good example of what the next generation of growth is going to require. Is that generation of growth, though, predominantly enterprise at the cost of the startup space? That's the question I've been trying to kind of answer. Because, you know, the, the amount of startup sales that Google Cloud was doing prior to TK was probably significantly higher due to Kubernetes. And then, you know, TK's come in, he's brought in a lot of enterprise salespeople from SAP and Oracle, people he knows who have these relationships with big enterprise customers. And so their big wins of the last year or two have been all big enterprises. And do we are we losing the vision of the startup in this mix, you think? I helped in both places between Amazon and Google with the startup programs and having, you know, built and had several startups fail. I, I feel deep empathy with folks in the startup space and have worked with a whole bunch of folks that are going through the success disaster of incredible growth that these platforms, frankly, like make possible in a way that was utterly impossible when I did mine, right? Like, uh, I remember running out of drive space in our brand new, we were calling it Hadoop because we didn't know how to pronounce Hadoop because we had read about it. Um, and uh, and the Rackspace folks told us it was 28 days to add a hard drive to our machine. So we drove them hard drives to 
San Antonio said, please put this in my damn computer because <laughs> it's the middle of the years 2000 when there's no clouds and you can't just get this stuff on the other end of an API. Um, I worked together with Google's work with actual startups, folks who are taking an angel round who have five, six employees who are trying to figure out how to streamline and simplify use. And I think the vast majority of what's needed to make those startups successful is better product, product designed to meet them where they are, not just uh, compatibility with legacy stuff. So Firebase, I think, you know, you, you pointed Kubernetes. I think that's kind of an important thing that companies need at their B round. I'm talking about what they need at their angel round when I'm trying to build an app today. And Kubernetes is an orchestration and operations platform. It's something that you need when you have more than one thing. When you don't have anything, you, you probably want to start with something yet even simpler. And I'm always blown away that people just don't start on App Engine and be done right? because the thing freaking works. So I built the pricing calculator for Google Cloud uh, and absolutely did not want to do operations and haven't. Still works. It's up and going. Like I, I think the hate of App Engine is still very much a, a yeah. holdover from the pre-Diane level, you know, Diane oh, yeah. level era where they, you know, it was like, well, we're only run for thirty seconds. <laughs> no, no, people loathe it, right? You're like, why? They got enough vitriol from continuing to evolve the the App Engine product that now they don't call GKE Autopilot App Engine V4, but they could. Works good for me. I'm stoked. I get the <laughs> Kubernetes API and I don't have to do ops. Sold. Game on. Yeah. Right. It's one of those things I think if they just if they just rebranded App Engine, I think they would get a lot more excitement around that product. Because sure. I think I think the, the bad blood of it is the problem. Launch exactly App Engine V1 today. Relaunch the original thing. People go, oh, this is like path breaking shit. Like, oh, I like it. Super good. Serverless, great data management, <laughs> integrated. This is even better than Heroku. I love it. Right? Like timing is everything. I, I built a bunch of startups that were way too early. So but back to your question, Amazon spent an exceptional amount of time and focus. I did tours up and down Sand Hill Road, doing briefings and helping startups and thinking through as an Amazon solutions architect, how, how to help them be successful in building patterns that were easy for them to be able to grab. And the result was a whole bunch of people that got educated about how those tools can be used to build high-scale systems. So the next round of startups are all people that know those patterns and have been successful using them before. And so there's a huge network effect uh, around the use of Amazon. I think it's a big exception to the rule today to see a startup that's building from scratch on GCP. And th that the cost of that is you don't get access to their growth as they as they you know either succeed or fail, and uh, and I, and I think that there's an expectation in the startup ecosystem that there's going to be massive credits and offsets and effectively investment from the cloud providers to help that happen. All of the different providers have six-figure credit programs for folks that have some kind of accreditation or somebody else buying into the idea that they're working on. Um, uh, it, but it, all of the work that Google has done to try and focus on the business of interacting with startups as opposed to just the pure technology product side of the work as, is underinvested in comparison to how Amazon and Azure have worked in this space. Uh, and I think if you're, you know, if you're trying to figure out now that these numbers are public, right, because they have put the actual revenues out in front of the world and they are carving the number out in the alphabet 10 Qs, right, like there's no confusion about where that works. I think it's really hard to go, 
I have an idea. Let's let's bust our way into the startup ecosystem and see if we can earn a hundred million bucks, or I can just go close one enterprise billion dollar deal. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's tough, right? And and th- there is the startup ecosystem. I think is a place that breeds a bunch of really incredible technology work. And you know, when I I love when my company goes and plugs into startups all the time. They show us incredible stuff, but. They spend nine dollars and twenty eight cents to do it, <laughs> and 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 if I'm if I'm taking a number on total revenue, it's hard to ignore the three point six trillion dollars in infrastructure being consumed in enterprise today. Like that is a big number, gents, uh, and uh, and it's uh, so if you're not thinking compatibility and enablement for that class of customers, it's it's hard to imagine you'll be successful. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think it. You know, you're right. The the patterns and the things that were established back in Amazon's early days and in the Asia early days for startups that is now out in the enterprise space, and they're trying to make those pivots as well. So, mm-hmm. attacking that space with the same mindset is is ripe with failure and also a huge opportunity, depending on how complex the company is and how stagnant they are in their technology stack. Um, but you know, kind of th- talking about that 3.6 trillion addressable market. You know, when a cust- uh, enterprise is coming to Google. We're talking to Sada in this particular case and saying, "Hey, we're looking at doing a cloud transformation journey. We're looking at taking this path. Um, you know, what is Google to them beyond GKE and BigQuery, Bigtable, which is what they're best known for?" No, no customer that I interact with has any idea about the products that you just mentioned. Right? Like we teach them about that stuff, and sometimes they, you know, they've got prior usage of one of the products or the others. What they remember is ads. And probably maps, and they might be a big fan of that G Suite thing, right? Those businesses have a billion users each. And so you find me a company that's not spending six figures on Google Ads, and, and I will buy you another coffee. So there's, uh, there's a huge opportunity, in my view, to help the real world divisions inside of real world businesses be successful with their data, with the applications they're trying to operate, with the systems that they need to deliver as product. I think if there's been a core focus from Google Cloud, um, you know, and I've pushed really hard on this viewpoint, is is to be attached to the product builders inside of companies, irrespective of which division they come out of. Sometimes it's marketing that happens to build technical and digital products. Sometimes it, you know, you're a SaaS business and the whole of your company is a technical product. Sometimes it's about the marketplace that you establish for all of your vendors and downstream suppliers. There's a whole bunch of different spots. Retailers, of course, have their whole go-to-market through, through a technical system. Um, in each of those different areas, uh, that's all of those places are faster moving than the core of IT. And while the core of IT controls a big estate, it is typically one that's under cost pressure and, and, and a place where companies see that as a spot where they want to figure out how to reduce their spend, not increase it. And if there's any sort of trajectory, it's, it's one thing to say, I'm trying to move my home-built gnarly ERP into a cloud provider so that I can have slightly easier management for my home-built gnarly ERP, or I can just forget it and go get a managed ERP (laughs) and leapfrog a couple of steps in the operations context. So I think there's a bunch where the cloud providers are working really hard now to facilitate the plumbing and governance and oversight and security controls and operational management of what is not a hybrid between their data center and 
uh, and, and a cloud, a hybrid between their SaaS fleet and the couple of things they still have to run on their own, right? And that hybrid is, I think, a lot more complex and a place where there's a lot more, um, a lot more product work left to be done. So do you think customers who are migrating from more legacy data centers to, to the cloud, whether it's AWS or GCP, do you think there's more transformation required to move to GCP? I think when we talk to customers, you know, in aggregate, if I lay out the benefits of the different environments, lots of customers see the benefits that Google describes, you know, better security profile, higher performance product, better price per performance in, uh, in aggregate across the different products, um, clearer developer stories, simpler documentation, more straightforward deployment for systems. Uh, they see all of those benefits and say, okay, cool, what do I have to do to get at those advantages? And I go, well, there's like slightly more change. And, uh, and in general, those changes are taking companies from closed proprietary commercial systems into increasingly a open set of APIs. And, and that transformation is one they want to do anyway, if they have like a remotely sound strategic viewpoint. And, uh, and so there's a lot of companies that go, I'm trying to figure out how to stop paying, you know, an absolute catastrophe for, you know, some specific data warehousing environment, right? Or, or a visualization layer that costs an unbelievable amount, or, uh, you know, we've, hand curated all of this exceptional, you know, operational management on top of the VMware platform. And now I must pay them every single year for the privileges of virtualizing, virtualizing machines when KVM and, and Zen have been out and open source for 20 years. So moving people up the hierarchy of needs by helping them get to a more open approach happens to also end up pointing them at Google as one of the largest producers of those kinds of open solutions in the world. And, and I think sets them up for not only a bunch of the sort of pragmatic benefits from Google Cloud, but is a more strategically sound viewpoint in the longer term. Urz's walkthrough of this stuff uh, paints a really clear picture where you might imagine that the competition is between Amazon and Azure and Google, and he would say that it is not that and that it's really between open and closed environments. And that Amazon and Google end up being a lot more alike in that way than, than Azure, right? Where we're pretty sure there's gonna be a totally proprietary commercial platform for building applications that run anywhere. I think they call that Arc now out of the Azure teams. They will continue to monetize that. It may talk the Kubernetes API or portions of it, but they will absolutely figure out a way to bake that into the EA and have that be something that you pay for perpetually. And if you've watched the trajectory over time, like Linux worked pretty good. <laughs> a lot of people found that pretty valuable. Turns out that like, you know, made a big dent in what was possible in the ecosystem because of the reduction of the cost of delivery of value that, that Linux provided. And uh, the successor macro projects of Git and and MySQL as a database and all of the other sort of big pieces that have helped people move forward. So uh, Google thinks Kubernetes is another in that list and uh, and is spending in engineering time and product management time uh, to, to drive that outcome and uh, with the hope that it makes a larger and larger percentage of the applications that companies run, uh, you know, easier and open and ready to be connected.
Do you think Google regret giving away Kubernetes the way they did, though? I mean, it, I hear people say that, isn't it great we can run Kubernetes anywhere, but then everybody who deploys Kubernetes as a service has a different spin on the thing, and it really isn't quite as, as seamless to transition between different implementations of that as perhaps the vision was originally? I think there have been a lot of news articles that have described some leadership team at Google that's like real grumpy about the fact that they, quote, gave it away. You can't, you can't give away a thing that you built together with a community. It's not yours. So there's a bunch of hot Googlers. Joe Beta's hyper smart. Uh, Brent, Brennan Burns, very intelligent guy. Martin Ganholm, who was their manager for a while, uh, was also quite uh, quite an influencer in this. Um, and and you know Craig McLuckie is brilliant. All of those folks did great work, but they were joined by smart people from IBM and Red Hat and and other teams that really wanted to see this vision uh, successful and. And so I, I don't think of it as a thing that they gave away. I think of it as a thing that they, they built together. And, and if Google wants to monetize that more, you have to imagine like how deep the self-loathing and self-hatred is around how much software that is worth, frankly, far more has already been given away, right? Like you think they're pissed about Kubernetes, let, let's tell you a story about Hadoop, right? Like, and, and <laughs> how deep that pain feels like, maybe we should have probably put an API about that that was on our software and help people use that. Tim O'Reilly, his comment is that you should create more value than you capture. And I think if Google was trying to destabilize a market that was deeply centering itself around VMs as the buildable unit, uh, Kubernetes allowed them to change that video game a little bit and I think created a bunch of the growth um, that they enjoyed over the last bit and opened up people to think about uh, the other building blocks that are available uh, in open that work in the same way. And I think the value creation has been enormous, right? How many little companies exist in the VM, or in the um, Kubernetes ecosystem that benefit from that? I don't, I don't think there's, uh, I don't think there's regret about allowing it to proliferate any more than there's regret about allowing Android to proliferate, right? Like, same same teams making the same decisions about the same investment about. Uh, investing in the scaled global standardization as opposed to the proprietary profit extraction, right? That's exactly the way that they think about it. Mm. So, so what do you tell customers who are concerned? I mean, Google are f fairly well known for killing products. Oh, yeah, I killed a product. It's awesome. And it has its needs sometimes for sure. But what do you tell customers who are looking at investing in, in GCP over a number of years? Isn't that worrisome? Uh, you know, they have to have to re rework their applications, rework their infrastructure. It sure. seems like it might be a costly risk. Yeah, I I think an individual API, right, like a singleton product inside the platform, each of them have deprecation policies and have their own, uh, you know, staff of investment that works those individual products. But GCP writ large, as the third largest part of Google behind YouTube, and I think it will beat YouTube by the end of next year is not something that Sundar is going to turn off because it's the largest TAM in the world. It's bigger than ads, right? So if they just grow at their current growth rate and they just keep their current market share, don't even have to move positions. You just got to wait for the transition of the world to move from the infrastructure of bare metal environments to the cloud provision environments, which are, they are only about 10% of the workloads and only about 6% of the money. So you do that math, right? 
Turns out you can just shave 40% off that three something trillion bucks if you can get everybody over into public cloud. That's the aggregate advantage that these technology tools provide. And so it's utterly inevitable. Of course that will happen. And you just wait for the world to change. And all of a sudden that business is materially larger than ads, which does not have the same untapped market ready to be matured. So it's, um, uh, you can you can go as short on Google Cloud as you want. <laughs> you will lose. Uh, and and I think way more important than the binding contracts that they sign with customers uh, or the uh, you know the work that they have done to revise how the deprecation policies work and the rest uh, is to look at the mutual press of decade relationships that they're signing. Right there are now six you know, nearly, if not billion dollars, nearly billion dollar decadal relationships that have been signed just in the last year and a half. And if I'm a company I, and you, you're telling me I'm going to have a 10 year business plan for my technology stack, like I doubt it. Uh, that's pretty tough. You got to be pretty massive. Uh, and I think, I think there are way bigger risks than GCP is going to turn off in, in those 10 year windows. Now, now I, I totally hear you about, um, the feeling of it, right? I, I, I build against, uh, you know, whatever the, the original data store API and now there's a Firestore API that's just over the top of it and do I have to sort of change my API integration and the rest of that bit? And Amazon has been notorious about never, ever, 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 ever deprecating these building blocks, which they will pay for forever, right? And if I'm a customer and I go, I want you to pay an operations team perpetually to maintain that one weird API that I don't use, because that's really the tax that every Amazon customer now pays, is a whole bunch of smart, hardworking operations people maintaining a product for the tiny subset of their customers that actually use the thing and haven't migrated off. Uh, and I, I think I would rather see the company that I invest in spend that money building me the next new thing I'm going to really need instead of that old thing that I don't. I can say it both ways. I mean, they, Amazon certainly control the price of, of uh, the more legacy services. They've put the price up of some of the S3 tiers, which clearly they don't want people to, to use anymore. But I mean, if, if I'm in the bit, I guess it depends very much which business you're in. If you're in a software business and you can deploy updates to, to your customers very easily, then, then changing in APIs or deprecating products or you know, having buyer's remorse over using one data store and then pivoting to the next, is, it's an easy transition. But if you're, making, if you're making IoT devices, for example, where they're more difficult to update, make a, a physical device which has a lifetime of 10 years, let's say. If in four years' time, the API I'm using or the, or the, or the product I'm using, whether it's an IP camera, it could be anything, if that's deprecated, you know, you're effectively, you're sort of prematurely ending the life of my, my product line. So I, mm -hmm. I, as a, as a customer, I think I'd have a much harder time going with a Google solution uh, because of that risk than I would with, with Amazon. Amazon isn't held to that, right? It's, it's cultural and it's reputational. So business conditions change, who knows? They might decide to turn off SimpleDB and break a whole bunch of stuff. There's nothing that holds them obligated <laughs> to that. Uh, and at the same time, on the Google side, I think they have heard this feedback really loud and clear, if only because I'm hyper-violent on the subject. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of people that have made it really obvious that um, if you're going to provide these kinds of tools to outside team members, you're going to have to figure out how to maintain them long term. I think the clearest and easiest path for that is to have the majority of products be built as open source, because then you can encourage a community to participate instead of having to be full time internal team members on the Google payroll that are running to operate these tools. Because the other end of it is 
so much of the operations for some of these systems is so simple and increasingly something that can be reduced to code through Kubernetes operators or the rest. You can see Google product managers moving over to build their product on Kubernetes instead of building it on the underlying board primitives exactly for this reason. I can, I can bring open source people in to contribute right away. They, I don't have to teach them this whole crazy ass platform to figure out on their own. And the operational management is something I can share with partners. So it's a, it's a place where I think um, the other side of that is, uh, you know, if, if you leave a thing stagnant like that for a really long time, you are, uh, you know, I think in a bunch of ways you're setting up customers for other classes of failure. So, uh, you know, we saw a lot of folks that were really augured in to the original APIs for EC2 and on the Amazon side, you know, it took them a while to figure out how the Spectre and Meltdown uh, security bugs inside of Intel uh, coprocessors actually worked. Um, we, Google did the work to identify that risk and to socialize it with everybody to help them be able to mitigate the problem. But uh, if, you, if you think that security risk is a scary one and you wanna be able to move, and you're sort of stuck in this proprietary API, that means you're gonna, yep, have to re-engineer a whole bunch of building blocks to be able to take advantage of it. If instead you were talking Kubernetes, you can redeploy that on Azure or redeploy it on GCP or redeploy it on wherever you feel like. So I think there's, um, these products aren't static, right? The underlying building blocks of them change all the time uh, and the risks that they're exposed to change all the time too. So I, I, I most of the companies that I talk to um, when we're when we're selling them, it doesn't come up in in the actual consumption of the product or the com contracts. And like you know, I take independent contracts with customers all the time that are in additional controls above the standard Google Cloud contract. And we've not signed one yet where somebody says you've got to include a thing that makes it so that they don't deprecate this given product. Right? Like in when really when push comes to shove, they don't ask for it. I wonder if that's a reflection of it isn't well known enough in the enterprise space. Because the reality is when you're talking about a SaaS company or a startup, or you're talking about a you know a company that's primary focus is delivering software, deprecation in those things is very common. And so it's something we deal with all the time. .NET deprecations, Java deprecations, et cetera. And there's some type of backwards compatibility. Um, you know, at least like when I read like Steve Yeggs conversations, something like that, mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, you look at a big enterprise. I mean, and I've worked for, you know, several three-letter companies in my career. Mm -hmm. They've got technology that's been running for 15, 16 years there's two guys who they keep on payroll just because they're the two guys who know it. And to tell that company, oh, yeah, you move that to, Am you know, to Google and, you know, five years later, they you don't have to invest a large amount of money to deprecate that API. That is it's harder for an enterprise, I think, to deal with that. We don't have a really great use case on that yet, which is actually harder for the enterprise. The persistent expense of maintaining their now immensely inefficient system that they will, they've decided they are never gonna get out of. We're gonna auger in, we're gonna make it so that every single one of the transactions we process internally has gotta go through that AS400 system. Or whenever we process payroll, we gotta wait for the, the, the billing run in the mainframe, right? Those, those building blocks make it so that companies operate at a certain rate of change. And, and I know zero companies asking me to slow down their rate of change, none. They all want to do more faster, and they carry around these board anchors. So either we got to help them off, which every single customer I talk to wants that help. Please make it so that I do not carry around this boat anchor. Um, uh, you know, I, I, that's the drive, not 
not, hey, can you make it so that I don't experience any change ever? And I agree. I think there's a lot of that that is true. There's also a lot of businesses that, you know, I think of in, you know, I came out of the mortgage market before my new job. Uh, you know, the big thing there was sending out your mortgage statements, mm-hmm. very COBOL based mainframe business. And many companies have come in and tried to revolutionize that product to make it better. <laughs> yeah. But the reality is, is that, you know, they're printing hundreds of millions of mortgage statements a month. And just the, the overhead of changing that is so high that mm-hmm. it's not worth it versus the risk. So there is always that risk equation that's there. And I, I, I agree with you that everyone wants to get innovative. It's hard. Hold on, man. It isn't worth it for them because <laughs> they haven't figured out how to talk to their board like adults. It was worth it for the folks at Rocket Mortgage who are eating them alive because they do not bear this boat anchor, right? Every company, everywhere, I don't care how regulated, I don't care how managed, right? Like Boeing, there's a safe company. Those guys build rockets. That's a serious capital investment. You're never going to be able to sort of, that you're going to have to maintain their, well, you, you should talk to Mr. Musk about that. I, I think he has an alternative view and he does not carry around the boat anchors that, that Boeing has to deal with or Lockheed has to deal with, right? Like, and it's not to say that those companies can't change. They want to. And, and they're super eager about it and they're making big investments in that direction, but they don't do it because they have their own intrinsic joyous motivation and they love the, the sweet miracle of new technology smell, right? They, they have competition that does not, is not as afraid of the risk of investment as they are. And that push is real. Companies are like how many companies have fallen out of the Fortune 500 in the last decade? That's a scary number if you're in the Fortune 500. I'm going to circle back to something you mentioned earlier because uh, I had a question about it, actually. So you mentioned G Suite and yeah. you know the businesses that you're talking to. And you know the reason why they know Google is typically G Suite or ads, which you know, makes sense based on their revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how important do you feel G Suite and Office 365 are to both the GCP and Azure's cloud journey? And do you feel that that is a struggle for Amazon to compete with them in those, some of those areas because of their products are just not that great? <laughs> we know nobody that is on sort of scaled tools from Amazon for that stuff. And, uh, and, and Microsoft, you have to recognize this is an existential threat, right? I mean, the office hegemony is the core of that business in a bunch of ways. And so every single deal, they fight tooth and nail I, I can't tell you how many deals where it's been Satya arrived and paid off our contract in order to be able to, res- I, I think they have like 50 clones of that guy flying around all over the place. Um, uh, but we sell a lot, right? And it grows rather quickly. And that's because the product is like way better. Uh, and companies know, and their employees know, and especially their young employees who have come from college and school experiences where that's the dominant platform. They go like, you want me to go slow on purpose? Like how much slower do I get to set my goals? Cause I can't get stuff done. Cause I'm busy dealing with which version of PowerPoint I'm trying to share to somebody by email, by attaching it to outlook, like it's 1997. So the, uh, I do think that companies want holistic buying and they want the ability to aggregate their purchases into larger clusters. So they have more negotiation power and not being able to aggregate in their, office and worker productivity and and communication spend with their infrastructure spend just means they're a smaller customer. And that that translates to less negotiating power, less leverage in in the sales motion, which is an important thing for companies. So when they look at Microsoft, they get great 
leverage because they buy such a huge swath of technology components from them. And Microsoft has used that to Microsoft's advantage, of course, by shoehorning in Azure all over the place where it's not actually being used. You should count like number of dollars of revenue as a function of number of exposed public IP addresses. Right, like uh, there's a delta there, folks. So uh, it's a it's an interesting spot where uh, I do think that that's a gap, and I'm surprised that they haven't made a bigger acquisition of somebody in that area to try and fill the gap. Yeah, I, I've been as well, but you know, Amazon's not one to buy established players in any space. They buy small companies that they can bend to their will, it seems. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about one of our favorite things on the CloudPod, uh, which is BeyondCorp, which we like to call the cool future world evil company. Uh, you know, we That's love good. the concept of this, uh, but, you know, we, we have some questions around zero trust access and world is, you know, where does it struggle? Where does it actually deliver? How do you see companies adopting zero trust access as part of their cloud journey? Sure. We're big fans of IAP and WAP and and helping people through the BeyondCorp model. We we pushed really hard for what's going on now in BeyondCorp Enterprise to help further expand the aperture of the interface that companies can make into that product. you know, I don't think anybody is served well by the mesh of funky VPNs and hardware devices they have to try and create this old network level security that that is just clearly the root of a whole bunch of the compromises that big companies have experienced over the years. Um, and and so, on the one side, you know, it seems it seems clear that identity will be the root of the long term solutions to these kinds of problems, but it always is always going to come back to compatibility. And, you know, until I can take somebody's Windows 95 desktop that they have never turned off, that they need to be able to get access to remotely and be able to get that plumbed over beyond Corp, I think things are going to be hard. And uh, and there's a huge amount of software that absolutely expects, you know, network level controls for this stuff rather than identity level controls. And so it, it ends up, I think, mirroring the maturation processes that are happening for containerization and Kubernetes in, in the in application deployment space, the, you know, to the move to, you know, more managed NoSQL databases instead of relational databases for a bunch of the workloads that fit for that. All of these points of maturation are really about identifying big big opportunities for optimization, big opportunities for easier use, simpler profile, better security, but at the cost of trying to cut off the bottom legacy, oldest, gnarliest, crunchiest components. And people have to make this sort of balancing act between how much old stuff do we have and, you know, how do I get down to coverage? Because I think one of the places where, um, where I don't think that it works very well is like protecting some, <laughs> right? Like when I'm a company, I want you to tell me that I'm going to like cover all my stuff and, and that I've moved everything up a percent instead of I have this patchwork of this part is a little safer and this part isn't so safe. Um, that's, that's really hard for a CISO to stomach. So I think there's, there's a lot of work in helping companies tell how compatible they are with that approach, how much of their stuff fits and how much doesn't and helping them be able to opt in to working that way with a clear idea of how much work it's going to be and what's what it's going to take to get started. Great. All right. Well, you know, it's been great ta- talking to you. You know, with Sada, you know, being one of the leader providers, where do you recommend customers start? How do they engage with Sada to help get them started on their cloud journey and their cloud story with Google? Sure. We 
we work with new companies all the time and we're super transparent as a business. I mean, like I'm miles at sada.com. You just want to send me an email, but please be my guest. Um, you know, Tony's Tony at sada.com. He's the CEO. Um, we're, we're really eager to interact directly with customers. You'll see us as hands-on and dynamic in the way that we work. Um, sada.com as a website has a whole bunch of what are called first start or first step projects where it's, uh, places where, you know, we hear from a lot of customers, they want to get started with a given technology tool or to understand how these things would work in practice in their sort of business scenario. And we can work together with the Google reps to de-risk that, make that experiment happen quickly. We, we know most companies are pragmatic decision makers. They're going to want to see proof of how this stuff works as opposed to just getting pitched at. And so we spend a lot of time making sure that we're simplifying the decision-making process, making it crystal clear how this stuff is going to work. And bearing, uh, frankly, a bunch of the risk on our side, because we've done this a lot of times. Most of our companies are only ever doing this once. Um, and that work uh, sets us up to have, you know, a real long-term collaboration. I'm proud of the retention rate on our customers as much as I am the growth rate of new customers. And uh, when we work together with companies longer term, we start to think through, you know, at what is the strategic direction that they're taking and how do we use the full, and I mean the full, pantheon of Google's platform to be able to best affect the way that they work. And that's um, being a provider that can cover that breadth, right? You want to rejigger some app and run it in Kubernetes, great. You want to build a new contact center with CCAI, great. You want to make sure that that's plumbed into your mapping system, awesome. You got to get everybody moved over onto workspaces while you're at it. Sure, we'll do that too. Like that kind of in the same way as the providers do better when they're a one-stop shop, we think as an integrator and consultancy, we do better by being a one-stop shop for the Google platform. And uh, and all that stuff uh, so far has been working pretty good. So uh, uh, just coming in, there's even like, we use the CCAI chat management tool, so you can go in and like chat with Ashley on the front of the screen and she'll sort of talk you through how things work or and sometimes it's Joe, there's a couple different people that, that are the other side of it. So. Um, I'm also, you know, Miles Ward at Twitter is an easy one to get to. I just did a clubhouse last night. There's a bunch of us yakking that way. So uh, it's hard not to be able to find us, let alone the other way around. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, mm -hmm. We will see you out there on the world of cloud. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks so much. Visit thecloudpod.net to subscribe to the show, join our Slack channel, or sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also find information on reaching our audience through a CloudPod sponsorship opportunity. A big thank you to today's guest, and thank you for listening.